So think for a moment about plants. I know that's a weird thing to think about, but um, what does a plant typically need before it can bear fruit? Because if you think about it, plants don't, you just don't put a seed in the soil and I'm sure there's probably some plants that are an exception to this, but you don't just put a seed in the soil and then that seed itself becomes uh, like fruit. You have the seed that, that develops a root system in the soil so that nutrients could be gathered. You have those roots develop a shoot system, which is either like a stem, if it's like a, like a small plant, a trunk of a tree, vines for things like watermelon or pumpkins or things like that. So you have the roots, then you have the shoot system as well, and then off of that you have the fruit that grows. Um, and so you have all three of those aspects needed for fruit to be born. And the thing is, to get a specific kind of fruit, you need a specific kind of root and shoot system. You don't just have, I mean, just think about how weird this would be if every kind of plant just randomly grew fruit. Like you didn't know what kind was gonna come from any kind of seed. That's not how it works. If you have an acorn from an oak tree, when that grows, it's going to have an oak tree root system that grows the trunk of a oak tree and it's gonna have branches and leaves like an oak tree. You're not going to have all of a sudden apples start growing off of it. Um, same thing with like a tulip. You're not gonna have a tulip bulb that grows and all of a sudden you start seeing like, instead of the tulip petals, you start seeing acorns come off of it. That doesn't happen. Different kinds of fruit are born from different kinds of plants. Um, and we're about to look at our scripture passage this morning. We're gonna look at Philippians 2, verses one through four. And I bring up this idea of plants because I want you to see in our passage that it, in a sense, outlines for us what the anatomy of a tree is that bears the fruit of joy. Um, Jesus himself said, you can tell a tree by its fruit. Good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. And so... We want our lives to, in a sense, be trees that bear the fruit of joy. And so we need to know what kind of root and shoot systems develop into joy, produce that. And so we're going to see how Paul details for us what kind of plant bears that fruit known as joy in our lives this morning. He tells us what kind of root system needs to exist, and he explains what kind of shoot system. And so um, if joy is the fruit that we're hoping to live in our lives, which I hope is the case for all of us, um, Paul equips us with the knowledge we need to grow that kind of fruit in our own lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so again, if you haven't already turned there, we're gonna be looking at Philippians 2, verses one through four. That's on page 980 in the black Bibles or page 636 in the white ones in the pew. Um, but as we look at that, pay attention to what I was just describing. How is joy grown and produced? What root produce, produces the shoot that bears the fruit of joy? There's a lot of rhyming going on. Um, so with that said, follow along with me as I read from Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. God's word says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Friends, we need Paul's message. We need these verses this morning because joy is a hard fruit to come by in our lives. It's hard to grow. It's, in a sense, like every plant that I've ever tried to grow in my life. It doesn't matter if something's considered low maintenance. I will kill it. There's only, I've, I've had a lot of plants over the years, but there's only been one that I've been able to, like, 
somewhat keep alive for an extended period of time. I kill plants very easily. Um, and that's what joy is oftentimes like in our own lives. Um, joy is hard to grow, and that's because our hearts are inclined towards the types of things that don't produce joy. Idolatry, self-indulgence, apathy, critical spirits, none of those things will produce true and lasting joy. But those are the things that our hearts typically gravitate towards. But joy is something that we've got to grow. It's something that we've got to devote ourselves to. And Paul knows that, and he helps us learn how to do so. In the passage, he shows us that joy comes from unity, and unity comes from humility. Humility, so going back to my analogy from the very beginning, humility is the root that builds the shoot of unity, which ultimately bears the fruit of joy that we're hoping to see in our lives. To put it another way, true joy is experienced in the context of unity, which can only ex exist when we are humble. So overall, Paul is showing us this, that joy is the guaranteed fruit of faithful humility. That's ultimately what I want you to see this morning. I'm praying that we can be a church that experiences that reality. I want us to be a church known for our humility. Um, and I know that if we are, if we, if we pursue humble, contrite lives, we will experience joy unlike anything we've experienced previously. And to help us to see that, I'm gonna structure this sermon kind of like the anatomy of the plant that I've already laid out. And we're going to work our way backwards because that's what Paul does. So first, we're gonna look at the fruit that we hope to see our lives bear, namely joy. Then we're gonna see where that joy comes from, the shoot of the plant, which is unity. And then finally, we're gonna see the source of all of it, the root of it, which is our humility. So let's start where Paul, where Paul starts. First, let's consider the fruit that is joy. So look with me again at verse one in chapter two. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. So I'm gonna stop there. Notice that Paul seems to be making a conditional statement here. He starts, so if there is, and then he lists things. But notice the, the things that he lists off in that conditional statement. He lists off encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Holy Spirit, and affection and sympathy. So you gotta wonder, he's, he's asking the Philippians, so if there is any of these things in your lives, so it seems like he's asking, do these things exist in your lives? But, but the thing is, aren't those typical and expected aspects of the Christian life? And the answer is yes. Paul is using a rhetorical device here, which he often does in his letters. He isn't actually making a conditional statement as though he isn't sure that the Philippians have these things. You can't read chapter one from this letter and think that he's genuinely wondering if they are experiencing those things. He knows they are. He spent chapter one rejoicing with them in these things. He knows they exist in the life of this church. He's spoken with confidence throughout the letter so far, and he will continue to do so throughout the rest of the letter, that these things are present in the life of the Philippian church. He trusts and believes that their faithful commitment to Jesus Christ and his gospel ministry is allowing them to experience these things. They're experiencing that encouragement in Christ, that comfort from love, the participation of the Holy Spirit, the, that affection and sympathy. He knows they're experiencing these things. He's not wondering if you have that, I'm not sure if you do. He's saying, yeah, I know you have these things, so do what I'm about to say next. And I point that out for one major reason. And it's a, it's a reason that we see Paul bring up multiple times already in this letter, and he'll continue to do so, that the life of a Christian can and should be characterized with joy. We can and should be joyful people if we are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. 
I mean, just consider each of those points that Paul brings up in verse one. I want us to look at each four of those statements and see how they should produce joy in us. So take, for instance, the first one, encouragement in Christ. Christians are those who know we are great sinners. We've said this multiple times on Sunday mornings whenever we do the time of silent confession. That's a reminder to us that Christians should be the first and foremost people to recognize that we are sinners. We're not Christians. We're not saved by God because we do the right thing. We recognize that. So Christians know we are great sinners, but the thing that sets us apart is that we know, even despite us being great sinners, we have a greater savior. That's what it means to be a Christian. No sin is too severe, no failure so disastrous, no weakness too persistent in our lives. We believe that Jesus died for all of our sins, all of us, our weaknesses, all of our failings and shortcomings. We know that he is the reason that we can be saved, not our ability to avoid those things. And that's past, present, and future sins. He knows all of them and has washed the guilt of all of them away from us. He knows us as messed up as we are, and yet he loves us so much that he died for us. That's, that's the gospel. What encouragement is more profound than that? Christians should just because of what we believe and know to be true, should find deep encouragement in Christ. Consider the second one, experiencing any comfort from love. And this is just like that first one that I brought up. How can we not be comforted knowing that Jesus loves us and was willing to give up everything for us? Plus, that God who loves us is in complete and total control over our lives and the things that happen to us. Nothing's just random chance. Nothing's outside of God's control and ability to redeem and use for our good and his glory. He is our protector, he is our shield, he is our savior, he is our shepherd, he's everything. I don't know anything that can be more comforting than that, knowing that's true. And again, as Christians, that is the foundation of our beliefs. So again, that should lead to joy. The third one, participation in the Spirit. The Christian is not only one whose sins are forgiven in Christ, but we are those who have been sealed with the Holy Spirit who grows and sanctifies us. We are being made holy by the work of the Holy Spirit in and through us. Jesus promised to send him to us. That's why he said to his disciples that it was better for him to leave because he would send the Holy Spirit. And Paul talks about us being sealed in the Spirit in his letter to the Ephesians and that is the guarantee of our inheritance in Christ. My point is this. If you are a Christian, then you have the Holy Spirit working in and through you all the time. There is no might about that reality. He is present and working. He's participating in your life in so many ways that you don't even see. So the participation of the Spirit is a very real and present reality. If you are following Jesus Christ, that is always a reason for us to rejoice. And then finally, affection and sympathy. This is self-explanatory given the points that I've already mentioned if the knowledge that Jesus was willing to die for you doesn't convey his affection for you already, just take Zephaniah chapter three, verse 17, where he assures us that God rejoices over us with gladness, that he quiets our fears and pains with love. He exalts over us with loud singing. That is our God's affection for us. Hebrews 4, verse 15, tells us that we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who sympathizes with our weaknesses because he came to earth and was tempted like we are. There is no one in existence who sympathizes with you better and whose affection for you is greater than our triune God. 
the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So where is the disconnect then? If all of that is true, why are we so prone to joylessness? If that is what we believe, is that, if that's what we hold to, why are we so prone to joylessness? That's one of the most frustrating aspects of the Christian life for me. And I'm sure I'm not the only one that feels that way. It, it frustrates me to no end that I can say all those things. I know those things are true, yet my heart is so prone to discontentment and joylessness and sadness and things like that. That disconnect between what we believe and our inability to fully and completely believe in our hearts is why we still sin. It's like we, we, we want to believe what's true. We know it in a sense, but there's an inability to fully and completely believe it entirely. We're like the man who cried to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. That, that should be, that is the constant state of our hearts. And Paul recognizes that tension too. That's, if you think about it, that's why this verse exists. Why did Paul mention all the things that he did? He could have just said, since you are Christians like me, do what I say in verses two through four. He doesn't say that. He points out these realities. He's saying, remember that these things are true for you. He's pointing out all of them to remind them that as Christians, as new creations united in Christ and united with Christ, we can and should experience joy in those things in verse one, encouragement in Christ, the comfort in love, the participation of the spirit, affection and sympathy, He's trying to help the Philippians believe and rejoice in those things because they, like us, are prone to forget. And look with me how he starts verse two. He lists off those things. So if there is any of those things, he says, complete my joy. Notice how he's quietly instructing them on how to find deeper and more abiding joy. It's, it's funny how he, he goes that. It's, he's listing those things and says, complete my joy. And he explains to them after that how to do that. He knows their joy will, will waver. So he wants to help them to take steps to strengthen it. And he's doing it by telling them how they can increase his joy. Do you see what he's doing there? The idea is, if this will increase my joy, it will increase yours too. And so the things that follow, which we're gonna get into the, through the rest of the sermon, are to help us recognize, recognize these, these realities that we should believe, that should be, lead us to joy. How can we strengthen our joy in them? How can we find deeper and more abiding joy in those realities? And that's where he takes us with the rest of the passages. That's what Paul says, what Paul is gonna show us, what is needed for his joy to be complete and for our joy to be complete. And what is that? We're gonna see, as we turn to our second point, that the shoot that produces the fruit of joy is unity in the Christian life. So let's look at the rest of verse two. So he says, complete my joy, and here we go, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full, in full accord and of one mind. Does that sound familiar? Maybe from last week's uh, sermon that Caleb preached? Look with me back at Philippians 1, verse 27. Notice the similarity in language here. He says, only... Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do you see what Paul is doing there? He's saying basically the same thing in both of those verses. He's using nearly identical language. And his point, his point is that the person worthy of the gospel of Jesus' life, the person who joyfully embraces the realities laid out in verse one from chapter two is someone who strives for unity with his or her fellow believers. A joy-inducing life is not one where we get everything we want. It isn't a life where nothing goes wrong. 
It's a life where you love and seek after Jesus Christ with your fellow brothers and sisters. It is a life where you partner with other saints in the same ministry to preach the same gospel and to rejoice together in the salvation of the lost and the magnification of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul is pointing out something key about joy here. Your joy is, in part, a product of your willingness to unite with your fellow Christians. Experiencing full joy can only be done with others. It's not a private experience. It's a corporate endeavor that we pursue together. Cutting yourself off from fellow believers will inevitably hinder your joy in God. And now, in general, I think we are a church that does an exceptional job of uniting together. I love, I love this church so much for that reason. I am so grateful for that. I know how much you all want to experience fellowship and how amazingly, amazingly you love each other. I've been the recipient of that love and fellowship from so many of you. Again, I am so grateful for that. This is a church that does community really well. So, because of that, we have to watch out for more subtle dangers in how we might cut ourselves off from unity, how we might allow division to take root. The danger we have to watch for is that we only share parts of our lives with each other. When we pursue unity, where it's easy to do so in different aspects of our lives, um, the danger is when we keep each other at arm's length in the areas where it's hard to do so. We don't want to tear down some walls while building up others. And Paul is clear in, verse, in, in chapter 2, verse 2. Um, he wants us to have the same mind, the same love, be in full accord, not partial. So think about your relationships in the church. This is a time for a little bit self-reflection and self-evaluation. Think about your relationships in the church. Maybe think about your LTG or your community group if, you, if you're a part of those ministries. Are there any unresolved issues that you're not talking about with people? Does a disagreement that you have between yourself and someone else seem insurmountable and so you're just not addressing it or dealing with it? Do you feel anger or bitterness towards a fellow church member that you're not really repenting of? Are there significant matters in your life that you aren't willing to share with others? that you're in close fellowship with. Friends, those are all things that will lead to disunity, not unity. We want to be able to share our full lives with one another. And those are all things that can exist even while we are investing and involved in each other's lives in other ways. That's why it's so subtle of a danger that can exist. We cannot be a church that's just united on the surface but divided underneath. I don't think we are. I thank God for that. But we will constantly be tempted to allow those kinds of division and disunity to develop and fester. So we must be constantly vigilant in guarding ourselves against them. They will kill our joy and, and choke our faith in Christ. And we've got to kill both the obvious and subtle areas of disunity between us, like I was just saying. But that leads to the question, how do we do that? How do we foster more unity? How do we grow in fellowship and love with one another? And that's where our third point comes in. It's the root of our unity and the ultimate source of our joy, and that is humility. Look with me at verse three in chapter two. Paul goes, goes on after explaining so he's just said, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then he goes on to explain how we can do that, how we can be united like that so that we might complete his joy and our joy. He says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Paul is clear here. If you want to complete his joy, and consequently our own, we are to be united 
And we will be united by putting off pride and putting on humility. Paul, a lot of the time in his, in his letters, uses that sort of framework where it's the putting off of sin and putting on righteousness, putting off something bad and putting on something good. Well, we see that here too. Put off pride, put on humility. Humility will naturally lead towards unity within the body, which will produce greater joy in our hearts. It is the root system of the plant that bears the fruit of joy, as we've already talked about before. Friends, there is no task, I, I would argue, more important in the Christian life than the task of killing pride and seeking humility in our own hearts. And I don't say that lightly. There's nothing that you should desire more than to live humbly before God and your fellow man. Pride is the root of all sins. And on the flip side, humility is the root of all godliness and joy. As God himself says in Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you are to build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So he's saying, what can you, mankind, do for me? What can you do for me? And then he says this, but this is the one to whom I will look. This is what God is looking for. This is what he desires of us. This is what pleases him. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That is what God is seeking in us. Let's look again at verse three so that we can remember what we're talking about here specifically and pay attention to the specific language that he uses. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So Paul describes pride as two things here. He talks about it in terms of selfish ambition and conceit. So what does he mean by those terms? I want to take a little bit of time to, to reflect on those things because that's important for us to do so that we can rightly be sensitive and able to notice the pride in our own hearts so that we can wage war against it. So the first one is selfish ambition. And the Greek word here, I was, I was looking, um, looking into it. it. It's really interesting. The Greek word that's translated as selfish ambition here in verse 3 it's most literally translated as partisanship, which I find incredibly both timely and sad given everything going on politically in this country right now. Um, I'm not gonna comment on what is happening politically, but if you've been paying attention to the news and everything that's been going on in the Senate, one thing that I think we should all be able to be recognized is abundantly clear to all of us, is that partisanship, like we're seeing in the Senate right now, will not produce unity or joy. Will not. Partisanship is when you separate yourself from others for the sake of trying to accomplish your own goals. That's why the ESV translates it as selfish ambition. You're ambitious after things for yourself to the detriment of others. That's something that I've had to think about a lot in my own life. It's like, how can we be ambitious and humble at the same time? And I, th I think a good way to recognize the difference is ambition is when you are seeking something good while being able to help others seek good as well. This idea of selfish ambition, of partisanship, is when you are ambitious, you're seeking something for your good to the detriment of others. It hurts those around you. It belittles them. It, it hurts them. That's the difference between a godly ambition and a selfish ambition. It's when you selfish ambition is when you show bias towards those who are like you and you villainize those who don't share your views. You see yourself as right and everyone else is wrong. Now, Redeemer, we've got to guard ourselves against this kind of mindset and practice. Again, like I was talking about before, there can be subtle ways that this can creep into the life of the church that we need to be aware of. Our hearts are prone to being just like the politicians who, if you're like me, are dumbfounding you right now. But we, but we as Christians, 
devoting ourselves to the word of God, have been shown and given another way by the grace of God to live our lives, a way that is not like that. Let's choose the narrow and straight path of godliness and righteousness. So let me just give you one example of what what that can look like. This is one way that I can see this kind of pride, this selfish ambition creeping into the church in, in subtle ways that we might not even be paying attention to. So I want you guys to know, I don't bring this up as a rebuke. I'm not saying that this is a major issue that I see in the life of our church. We need to address this. I'm saying, let's be sensitive and aware that this could come up. This is something we wanna be readying our hearts to fight against. Think about this. We are a thoughtful church. There are a lot of very intelligent people that are a part of Redeemer Church. And that means that we have a lot of people who hold to their opinions and convictions pretty strongly. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. We want to be people of resolve and conviction. That is good. However, it's not good if we sacrifice our relationships upon the altar of being right. We need to be able to disagree with one another at times in love. We should be able to disagree with one another and be able to maintain trust and compassion and support and respect for one another. If we can't, that's a sign of this subtle kind of pride creeping in that Paul is telling us to avoid. So many disagreements that we experience in the life of this church, in life in general, are things that scripture's not even explicit about. I mean, just take a couple things, for for instance, that I know have been topics of discussion in the life of Redeemer. Homeschool or public school? How should we spend our money? What style of preaching is best? How should our community groups or life transformation groups look? Cubs or cardinals? All important things to think about, to consider, to make decisions on. But none of them should be things that divide us, things that prevent us from loving each other deeply or doing ministry together. We don't want to turn molehills into mountains. I'm sure you've heard that phrase before. We need to be able to recognize that people can come to different conclusions than our own, and their alternative conclusions may also be well thought out, valid, and wise. Being unyielding in our conclusions is not necessarily a sign of maturity and wisdom. It could be a sign of pride, so we need to pay attention to that. Let's guard ourselves against that, church. The other word that Paul uses to describe pride here is conceit. And he's referring here to a pursuit after one's own glory. He's talking about our senses of entitlement. This is our tendency to think that we deserve things from each other. Think about it. We so often feel like we deserve. These are, these are things that I've experienced, or I've, I know others of you have shared that you experience as well. We deserve more attention from friends or family. We deserve more obedience from, ki- from our kids, if you have them. We feel like we deserve more money from our jobs. We deserve a break because we, we've worked so hard. All these things aren't necessarily bad things to desire, but none of them are things that we are entitled to. And because we think we're entitled to them, We're experiencing pride at times. Friends, I say all this to to point out this reality. The fundamental issue with pride is that it is an inward posture that doesn't match up with reality. That's why even the most self-deprecating person, person with the lowest self-esteem, can still have rampant pride in their life. Pride isn't just about having a big head. It's not just being about really puffed up. That is one form of it. But more than that, pride is self-focus. It's self-preoccupation to the neglect of others. We see ourselves as being at the center of the universe when we really aren't. And it makes all of our decisions and desires about ourselves, again, to the neglect of considering those around us. What do I need? What will benefit me? How does this situation impact me? Why am I right and they are wrong? 
Pride focuses us on ourselves and either obviously or subtly pits us against one another. That is why unity is impossible where pride flourishes. C.S. Lewis, in typical eloquent fashion, um, addresses why pride kills unity. He says this in his book, Mere Christianity. I think this is such an insightful statement. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Again, I think Lewis's point is incredibly insightful. Pride essentially puts us in opposition to one another. And that is why the key to humility, or the the key to unity and joy is humility. Whereas pride is an inward, corrupt posture that puts us at odds with one another, unity is an outward, life-giving posture to embrace. Fundamentally, humility is a desire to love others without concern for one's self. It is self-forgetfulness, if you want to put as simple of a definition on it as you want. Humility is self-forgetfulness. A humble person is one who says, my life is not my own. It is Christ's to be used for his sake and the sake of others. As Paul says, it is counting others as more significant than ourselves. Look with me at verse four. He goes on to emphasize that reality. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, which is the posture of pride, but also to the interests of others. We are called to concern ourselves with others and to pursue their good, even if it means making sacrifices that may be painful and hurt us. As Paul says in Romans 12, we want to outdo one another in showing honor. Is that a goal that you have in your daily life? That's something that I've, I've tried not very successfully a lot of the time, but that's something that I've thought about often in my relationships with other people. I want to try to outdo other people in showing honor. Again, I don't always succeed at that, but it's a good goal to aspire to. It's a good goal to keep at the front of your mind. And I know that it's hard to believe, but you will find more joy in life by serving rather than being served. By pouring yourself out rather than being being poured into. By praising others rather than getting praised. It seems so counterintuitive. Our our proud disposition makes us want to disbelieve that. We want to think to find joy, we need to get praise. We need to seek honor and recognition from those around us. But it's actually the opposite. As Jesus said, the first will be last and the last will be first. Do you believe that? Our Lord tells us that's true. So we got to commit ourselves to that belief. That naturally leads to the question, What does living a humble life look like? What does humility look like lived out on a daily basis? I want to consider four quick examples from the letter to the Philippians. In fact, they all four come from chapter two. I think it's really interesting that after Paul says this, he outlines four examples of people demonstrating great humility. Um, I, I have to think he probably did that intentionally. He, he calls us to humility, and then he gives us application points by giving examples of people worthy of imitation in this. And so I want us to look at four of them um, just from this chapter alone where humility is put into action. So the first one is Jesus. It's in the, the passages right after this. So look with me at verses five through eight. So he says, have this in mind among yourselves. He's talking about what he, just, what he was just referring to, this idea of humility, counting others more significant than yourselves, putting their interests over our own. He says, have that mind among yourselves, 
which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, Jesus' example here, and I'm sure this is why this is the one that comes immediately after our passage, is the most important one and the foundation of our ability to be humble. Jesus is the epitome of humility and the foundation of it. It is because of him that we can be humble. Notice the absolute humility he demonstrates here. He is utterly unconcerned for himself. Jesus was and is God. No one has ever had greater majesty, greater prestige, greater glory. No one has ever deserved greater honor, greater respect, or greater praise. No one. No one is worthy to even stand in his presence. As John the Baptist recognized, we are not worthy to untie his dirty sandals. Jesus is holy and set apart from us in ways that we cannot even fathom in our limited minds. It is unbelievably, yeah, it's hard to even describe just how incredible it would be. Like you hear stories in the Old Testament about how people couldn't even go before the king without being requested there or they would be killed. This is that times infinity, our relationship to Christ. And yet in that, he gave up all of that, all of that honor, all of that prestige, all of that glory. He gave all of it up to come to earth and die on the cross to pay for our sins. No act in all of history has required more self-sacrifice and humility than that. No one in all of history has been owed everything like Jesus Christ was, yet gave all of it up so that we could have it all through faith in him. He gave up everything so that we could have everything in him. That is the source of faithful humility that we can demonstrate and live out we can be humble and care for others more than ourselves because we don't have to earn our own worth or value. Jesus gave us his on the cross. We are the sons and daughters of our God. We are royalty and have an infinite inheritance awaiting us. And again, it's not because we seek our own glory. It's not because we take every opportunity to try to garner and earn glory for ourselves. It's because Jesus gave us his. People oftentimes mistake humility for detachment. Humility isn't just a detachment from everything in the world. Rather, it's a recognition that we already have everything we could ever possibly need or want in Jesus Christ. So we don't have to, we don't have to hoard glory and praise for ourselves. We don't have to seek it because he's already given it to us through our union with him by faith in what he has done for us on the cross. That is the gospel. That means we can go through this life utterly unknown and unappreciated because when we enter into the presence of of our God, we will be known and loved and glorified in ways that we cannot imagine. We will be given robes of the finest linen and we'll be seated at the table of of highest honor in the throne room of the maker of the heavens and the earth. Can you picture that? No imagination can, can show us no story, no imagination that we can come up with for ourselves can paint a more beautiful picture than what awaits us because of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus faced humiliation on the cross, we have nothing to fear and everything to gain by being humble too. 
So that's the first one. The other ones will go more quickly. But look with me at our next example. We're gonna look at what Paul says even about himself in chapter two, verse 17. Look with me what he says there. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Redeemer, a humble person is grateful for opportunities to serve and sacrifice on behalf of others. They don't just do it because they see it as their duty, but a humble person is grateful for the opportunities to do that. The humble person sees his or her sacrifice as no sacrifice at all because it is, again, better to, be, to serve than to be served. Paul's devotion was to the Philippians and their well-being. So he did not question whether or not he should do something if it meant it would be beneficial to them. Again, he allowed himself, he would gladly and joyfully give himself as a sacrificial offering for their sake. I want to live that way for you guys and I want you to be able to live that way for each other as well. That is what Christ has done for us. Again, he is the epitome of humility. He is the foundation and cornerstone of it. Paul is an example of someone who walked in humility because of his Lord and Savior, and we can imitate both of them. And we can imitate Timothy. Look with me at uh, Philippians 2, verses 19 through 22. Paul wrote this of Timothy. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare for they all seek their own interests not those of Jesus Christ but you know Timothy's proven worth how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel Friends, what a commendation from Paul. I think for Paul, that is one of the kindest praises he could possibly give for someone. Paul, and Paul isn't praising Timothy, though, notice. He's not praising him for making a name for himself. He isn't telling the Philippians that he's sending Timothy because he's the best preacher or the most gifted strategist. Those aren't the things, those aren't the reasons why he wants them to be eager to receive Timothy. He wants, Paul is highlighting something even better, Timothy's humility. What Paul appreciates most about Timothy and what he wants the Philippians to be eagerly anticipating from him, what he wants them to appreciate in Timothy the most too, is his concern for their welfare. Timothy loves them and cares for them deeply, unlike anyone else doing ministry with Paul at this time. His concern is not for himself, but for them. A humble person is one who devotes themselves to anticipating and meeting the needs of others without even them even needing to ask for it. Paul wants the Philippians to appreciate that, and I want us to be a church that appreciates that as well. Oh, I want us to be able to appreciate the heart of one who quietly and just humbly serves. Even if someone doesn't get a lot of recognition, a lot of appreciation, they're not, they don't have a lot of notoriety, I want us to appreciate that life. That is, again, as we talked about from Isaiah 66, that is the person to whom God longs to look. That is the person who God's pleasure is upon. That's what Timothy embodied. That's what I hope we can embody. It's someone whose normal rhythm of life involves looking for ways to bless those around them and to seek their good. The last example and kind of application that I want us to consider in thinking about what does humility look like lived out is Epaphroditus in chapter two, verses 25 through 27. Paul wrote this about him. I have thought it necessary to send you, send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. 
Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Again, here's a man who Paul deeply appreciates, and it's because of his humility. And notice, notice what distressed Epaphroditus. His issue was not that the Philippians forgot about his suffering. It wasn't his suffering, which he was near to death, so it was a lot of suffering. The suffering was not what distressed him. It wasn't that the Philippians weren't praying for him or anything like that. He was distressed because they did know about his illness. Who, when they are sick, gets upset when others find out about it? I'm the opposite of Epaphroditus. I want people to know when I'm sick. I want people to be sympathetic and to be concerned for me. But that's the problem. I'm not humble. Epaphroditus, though, demonstrates what humility could look like at times in our lives. His concern, even in the midst of his own suffering, was the well-being of the Philippians. He didn't want to distress them unnecessarily, even if that meant that his own suffering went unnoticed and he went uncared for. His concern was for them, not for himself. Redeemer, as I've said before, the source of our humility is knowing that we have been seen, loved, and are worthy in the eyes of our God because of our union with Jesus Christ, not because of what we gain for ourselves. Because of that, we can be humble. And in fact, we can prize humility in ourselves and others. We don't have to seek our own glory in this life. In fact, God commands us not to because he offers us all glory and praise through Jesus. Friends, joy is the guaranteed fruit of faithful humility. So seek humility. And by doing so, find unity and experience joy. Strive to remember the glory that you have in Jesus Christ and rejoice in it. Imitate those who demonstrate the beautiful self-forgetfulness of humility and patiently anticipate the blessed fruit of joy that will come. It might not come for a while, but it will come. Trust our God with that. Pray with me.